Well, welcome. My name is Kyle Meeker. I am here with Jeff Bucknam. That's right. Just the two of us, baby. And our faithful producer, Josh. Thanks, Josh. Um, we recently had a series going through Romans, and part of Romans goes through Romans 9, 10, 11, which talks about election. And so during that time, we um, let people know that we were taking some questions to uh, address specifically the topic of election, because it is such a controversial issue. Um, so this podcast is a summary of those questions, those issues. And so we're going to walk through many of those questions. If you send in a question, you will probably hear some part of your uh, question represented here. We weren't able to ask all of them. We try to combine them and um, collate them in order to uh, get to the heart of some of these these issues. Most of the questions that are raised about the, this issue tend to be the same ones, though, ultimately, don't they, Kyle? I mean, like, you, you've been around this discussion for, what, 20-something years? And after a while, they're, they're just, uh, you teach classes on it and stuff. It tends to be the same kinds of questions, ultimately. Sometimes phrased differently. Yeah. But ultimately, they there there are a group of probably what ten fifteen questions that are raised about it all the time. Yeah, and you can uh, look at it through questions about God and His character. Is God just? What's His nature? Mm. Uh, and also the questions of you know who are we as people? Are we responsible? What what is our responsibility in in living in knowing Him and right. serving Him? Yeah. So before we get into it, I thought we'd just briefly um, try to paint a picture of of election. Uh, and what we're talking about by looking at um, Calvinism, often the term that it's used for at least your view of of election. Yeah, I try to avoid. I I try to avoid the tags because people have a history with them, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. But you know, the ta- tags are really helpful in conversations of a theological nature because it helps. It, it just helps to shorten your language. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you came up with some. With two new tags. Oh, I did. One, instead of Calvinism, you said God guides yeah. in some of the sermon series. And then instead of Arminianism, yeah. which are typically the two um, Big titles, yeah. um, you said God responds. Yeah. So ultimately, it's the, yeah. Does God respond in an Arminian view? Does God res- God responds to what he foresees in a person's uh, life, basically? He's got, uh, he's got a, an exhaustive foresight of the future. And so he, he bases his election on what he foresees someone's response is going to be given a certain set of circumstances, right? So basically taking a step back and seeing what the person will do with the opportunities that they've been given. Right. And if they choose God, then God will elect them based upon that foreseen faith. Okay. So that's God responds. Yeah. So he's responding ultimately to what he sees in them. Uh, God guides is my 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 definition of Calvinism. Uh, some Calvinists wouldn't like that at all. They they want something more more bold, I think, than that. But mm. it's the idea that that election is unconditional. Election is not based upon what God sees in anybody. Election is based purely on God's will. Um, so He chooses who He wants. So that sounds crass, but uh, that's probably the best way to say it ultimately. Like, why did God choose me? Because he felt like it. And that so, sounds, what? He feels like, why doesn't he feel that way? That raises all the other questions. Right. 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 But ultimate, ultimately, um, that, yeah, it's it's rooted in God's God's will alone. Yeah. So what, um, before we get into it, one of the questions that I thought was interesting among the questions that were sent in was a question to you about what made you change your mind? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I was really committed 
really committed Arminian, really committed to the God response view significantly. And I, I, by the way, if you ever sit down in a class that I will teach about this, I've taught theology classes here at, at Northview for all the years I've been here and used to teach it at kind of a Bible college level as well when I was in New Zealand. Um, I will go through uh, an argument for Arminianism and an argument for Calvinism or try to compare the two usually in a class hour. Kyle, you've even been in some of those classes before. So um, I I hold the I held the view of Arminian. The reason I know people sometimes in that class will ask me, well, like how did how do you know the Arminian view well so well? Well, because I used to argue it really strongly with people, and it it's the viewpoint. Um, the the viewpoint makes a lot of philosophical sense to me, and an Arminian view does. It makes a lot of philosophical sense in the sense that it 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 deals with questions of moral culpability, culpability meaning that does, does can somebody be held responsible for uh, for their choices if God has determined those choices? I, it always seemed to me to be like, well, that's, that makes no sense. Of course they can't. So Arminianism is basically dealing with that issue, saying, look, if people are going to be held morally responsible for the choices they make, God can't determine them in any way. And so that that precludes any kind of like sovereign election in that regard, you know? So uh, I was very, very committed to that viewpoint, even in seminary, and as I've told stories about about it. Um, <laughs> what really caught me, quite honestly, was was Romans was Romans nine was the the biblical material in this particular passage of scripture. There are other passages that I would point to. I think that what Jesus says in Matthew eleven is really challenging. Right? I hide it from the wise, wise and learned, and reveal it to the little, little children. He prays, he's praying to his father there. Such was a gracious will, father. So there are other passages, Ephesians one, that really do talk about this in a little in some detail. But Romans nine is dealing specifically with the question of why is it that some people in Israel are saved and some are not? So why is it that some Jews have received the Messiah and and warmed their hearts or had their hearts warmed to him, and why has have others rejected him? So Paul's dealing with the very question of why do some people believe and others don't. Um, I fought it. I used to. I read every book I could find in the Dallas Seminary Library about this passage, and uh, I especially read and took great notes on the Arminian ones because I wanted a viewpoint of the Arminian take on this that was going to hold up. And I, I constructed a theology of Romans nine that tried to answer all the questions. The problem was that it, they all worked as long as you stood at a distance. But the moment you got into the actual words and grammar of Romans nine, it kind of blew. It kind of blew blew all of them up. And I I always have thought of myself as being a um, intellectually responsible person, and I just couldn't get rid of this gut feeling that I was reading this text wrong. That there was stuff in this text that I could not explain. Phrases, uh, ter- words important f- things being said in this passage that I could not an- that my particular take on this passage could not answer. And so when I went to seminary and I had some other professors who they were very patient with me, but I had a gr- we had a Greek class and we were going through the Greek you did too, remember? This is, what was it Greek 205, I think New Testament 205. Yep. Exegesis of Exegesis Romans. Exegesis of Romans. And so we got to the Romans 9. I was I had fought with my professor all term and I remember walking into the class saying, "Lord, I I I'm tired of being awake at night about this, and I've read everything I can read about this, so for the, maybe the first time, I'm just going to sit in this classroom, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to this text, and I'm going to see if it makes sense the way he's talking about it. And to be honest with you, the, as you walk through the passage, it, 
you know, it, it does make a ton of sound. The plain reading of it, it makes a ton of sense. So the, the, uh, the way gods, that a Calvinist would read it. <laughs> the God's gui- God guides, yeah. the Calvinist view, actually, at the end of the day, brought you and brings you much peace. Well, it does in the end. It brought me peace with the Bible. Mm-hmm. I will tell you this, that the, the Bible, I don't have trouble with Scripture any, anymore, or the God of Scripture. I used to. I used to struggle a lot with some of the things that God did in the Old Testament. I used to want to have, hold, like, I wanted to hold him responsible for things I thought were immoral or these sorts of things, but I, I don't I don't feel that way anymore, largely large because of what Romans 9 has done to me. And it's not just Romans 9, what God has done to me through Romans 9. I mean, I think that, that phrase right in the middle, who are you to, oh man, to answer back to God, is is just evokes all sorts of memories of the book of Job. And, you know, who are you, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? That's what, what he asks Job in Job 38. Mm. So I... I've gotten to the point where I'm okay with God being God, the way he's revealed himself in Scripture, and ultimately I don't think that I'm in any kind of position to pass moral judgment upon him for what it is that he does. I just want to understand who he is and how he's revealed himself to be, and it was kind of that surrender to God and and to the Scriptures. That's why a lot of people, I think, who come from a more Arminian view and then come to a Calvinist view, they even talk, they talk about it almost as, a, as, as if it's a renewal. Seriously, I've, ta- I've, listened, I've talked to some Calvinists who um, talk about it in the same way that like a like somebody who's a charismatic talks about the charismatic renewal like mm. it just really did was a it was a promotion of their faith significantly now listen that does not mean there are people who've gone the other direction probably say the same thing and right. so I that does not mean that it proves one thing or another I don't like it when people say well you know wh- why this person changed their mind therefore they're right I, I might right. be wrong ab- about it in the end. Uh, the way you make a decision about this isn't because I changed my mind or came to a different viewpoint. The way you make a decision about this is is based upon what the right reading of these texts is. What does Paul mean by the words he uses in mm. these places? So that's where the debate should be held, yeah, not just in Romans 9, but several other passages. Right, right. Yeah. And I was, uh, as I read through the questions, I was really struck by the fact that there's an, an assumption in all these questions um, and the assumption is about God and, and His Word, God and His Scriptures, in that the assumption is that, that God and what He says are consistent. Yeah. Uh, because if, if you don't think God is consistent in His character or in His Word, then it's an easy problem to solve in the sense that, well, uh, you know, Paul thought this, and he got some things right, some things wrong. Matthew wrote this about Jesus, and he got some things right and some things wrong. Mm-hmm. So if, if you... Um, if you fall back on, well, God is inconsistent in his, nar- in his nature, or the scriptures are inconsistent in their declaration of who God is, then you don't have a problem. You just kind of read it, and yeah. that resolves all the tension. So Kyle, within you, all these... You, 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 I mean, you had a similar view. You and I have known each other for 20-something years. Like, so mm-hmm. uh, you had a similar view that you had more of an Armenian view as well. Oh yeah, as I recall, yeah. and and you ended up writing a master's thesis on Romans nine. Yep, and that did that kind of changed your mind a little bit. But even even at that point, I remember you not being fully committed to to what you what it, you would be committed to today. <laughs> what was yeah, so what was, changed was, your mind? Um, was it the similar? It was a long long journey for sure. Um, I thought you know I have to do a, a thesis, so I thought I'd tackle this topic, and I'll spend a year studying it. At, Piece of know, cake, and then at the end of the year, 
You will write the definitive have, treatment on I'll it. I'll have it figured out, and then all the all my all my questions will be answered. All the problems will be solved. I got to the end of the year, and I learned a ton, um, but didn't have everything quite as kind of settled in my soul and in my mind as 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 I would have liked. Um, I wrote my thesis on Paul's uh, use of Pharaoh in the Exodus account in Romans nine, and at the end of it, I basically said, well, God is intimately involved in his creation. That's mm-hmm. kind of where that study of that year brought me to. And now um, now I see the scope of Scripture talking about God God guiding in, mm-hmm. in wonderful, beautiful ways. Yeah. So you're talking to two converts in some yes, ways, definitely, right? definitely so. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah. that should you should re- realize that some people, when they get converted from one viewpoint to another, they end up thinking the former viewpoint was the stupidest thing ever, and they call everybody in that other viewpoint, you know, the enemy. That's certainly not the way I feel at all. I have a lot of, like, I have a lot of time for people who are walk- working through this issue mm-hmm. uh, because it's something that took so long for me, and I'm actually not fussed if somebody doesn't come to my conclusion at in the end. Uh, I. I I want them to because I think that I think it'll help you with the Bible, and I think it'll help you understand who God is and the way He's made His world. And I think there is a settledness that will come upon you because God is this way. And I especially think it's going to help you in suffering because to know that there is a God who has has the world under the biggest issue that we all face is what 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 in the world is going on with evil in the world? Why does it exist? And I think this subject actually answers that to some degree. It gives me a, what we call a theodicy. Of how do you deal with God and evil? Yeah. And I think one of the points of uh, one of the sermons you had was you don't, something along the lines of, you don't have to agree with me in order to be an awesome, faithful member right. of Northview Community Church. You, you um, yeah, this is a, a big tent in that sense of you don't have to have this issue all figured out or in, you know, concurrence with, with the senior pastor in order to, to serve here. Right. Um, very good. So does this mean we have it all figured out? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> no, no. No, you're always always learning and growing. I, f- I find myself as I read through these, one of the joys of pre- preaching is that as you read through these passages and you have to do some like detailed study on them, you learn more. And, and uh, I will say that I have been uh, affirmed as I, re- as I read this stuff. And as I study it, I've been affirmed in what I, th- what I think. I've not yet come across something that I'm like, oh, that throws a monkey wrench completely in it. So I, I feel that I'm able to help people asking some questions. Whether they like the answers or not I, is okay. But bi- biblically, I think that there are, lots of, there are lots of good answers to the questions that people raise. Hmm. Uh, very good. Let's um, dive into some of the questions then. Okay. Uh, the first one is uh, basically a summary of it would be, are, could both be true? Can you be... Is this like... Uh, I remember um, seeing a T-shirt that said, on one side, I chose to wear this T-shirt, and on the other side, God chose me to wear this T-shirt. So same T-shirt, two different expressions. Uh, Can both of these be true? It depends on what you mean by both, I think. What you just said, I think, is is right. So there's an old saying that uh, the entrance to heaven is... Come says has a big sign over the top. Come to me, whoever will, right? But on the other side, from the inside looking out, it says, uh, "Welcome those chosen by grace," or something to that effect. So in that sense, I agree. Yes, 
Yes, the Bible frequently places side by side the idea of human responsibility or human freedom, right? You you need to choose. You you can do have what you want, right? You can have Jesus if you want him. You don't have to have him. You don't like it, it's up to you. It puts that side by side with uh the reason that you want what you want is because God has either opened your eyes or not opened your eyes to see the beauty of it or not. Mm. So there is a divine, what we say, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are, are partners. They're not enemies, they're partners. So I think it absolutely is true. So, so when people ask me what my viewpoint on salvation is, I say, I say God, uh, God has, has sovereignly chosen uh, to elect those who freely choose him. <laughs> but the sovereign choosing precedes the freely choosing. Is that just a sovereign election? Sorry, precedes the freely choosing. So what's the? So um, I'm, even in my language, there you hear me. Mm-hmm. You hear me trying to tie those two together. Whereas somebody who's an Arminian will hear me say that and go, "Oh, I, I think I hold the same view. That God has chosen to elect those who freely choose Him, but they want to put the freely choosing prior to the election." So what's the the dividing line then, or the 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 distinction between the two views when you boil it down? Yeah. What's the difference? So I, th- I think the difference is ultimately, do, do you believe that uh, election is based upon God's seeing something in a person or seeing something that a person does, or do you believe that election is based purely on God's sovereignty alone, his sovereign will? So I, I believe that God is chosen based upon his sovereignty alone. And I think that Others say no, no, no. He's he's based it upon some something something else. So is 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 election to use the theological terms unconditional or conditioned upon something? I'll put it another way. <laughs> is so to use theological language here for some people who might be listening. Okay, does regeneration precede or follow faith? <laughs> I mean, regeneration means the the, the sparking back to life. D- does God need to spark someone to life? in order that they will respond in faith? Or does God spark to life those who respond in faith? And I'm saying it's the first. So what is it about people that um, that prevents them from loving God? Why don't we love God just from the womb? Yeah, well, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the, or the, who's the image of God. So it's 2 Corinthians 4. They're blind, uh, right? You, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins in what you used to walk, right? Uh, serving the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We are slaves to unrighteousness, slaves to sin, Romans 6. So, so that, that my point is that there's language. Even First uh, Corinthians two, um, the 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 unspiritual mind, right, is not able to appreciate the things of God. Um, so it seems weird that God would make people this way. Well, He doesn't make them that way. He made people in the garden. He made them. He he made them not that way. But this is what the fall has done. So mm-hmm. whenever we look at people, it's one of the challenges in the modern world. A lot of people want to say, "Oh, people when they're born are in this great state. They're not in their great state." We believe in original sin. We like we all. I hope we do. That's a that's a orthodox Christian belief that people when they're born are a mixture of two things. They are made in the image of God, but also they are they are bent in on themselves. Use language that Luther used to use, right? So like we are we are tainted image bearers. 
And so the question is, what, what effect has that sin had upon the human being? Like, we're not as bad as we could be. Right. Okay? But there's not an area of our lives that is not touched by sin, including our will. So the old illustration is, look, if God gave a choice to anybody, he basically said, oh, Kyle, I'm going to give you, you I'm going to let you choose me or not choose me. Here it is. So if Kyle's unregenerate, meaning he, is, he has not been... He, he's just in the state that he was born in, right? Which is hostile to God, blind, right? Dead, to use that language I just used, right? So he, he, all this stuff is true of you. Um, and I'm going to give you a choice. Uh, you, blind, dead people don't make good choices. <laughs> they don't. They're, or to use other language, your chooser's broken, um, so one of my favorite illustrations with this whenever I teach classes is to say, okay, so like, it's like, Kyle, I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to give you a choice of a good, uh, of, of, of one brownie out of 10. Here's, I got 10 brownies in front of you. One of them is made with good ingredients. The rest have, have dog feces in them. Okay. So that's, that's vivid. So, yeah. So you have to choose the right, the right one. Now, in order for you to make the choice for the good brownie, there are certain things that need to be true about you. Uh, namely, you need to have a, a, a properly working taster and, a, more importantly, probably a properly working sniffer. Yeah, I want to smell it first. Yeah, I like I, you, need, you need to be able to discern somehow that the brownie that is good is actually, is actually good. But if you have a broken sniffer or a broken taster, then, then you're not... What, what you have in and of yourself is not adequate to make the decision. This is, this is exactly what I think is happening in, in the scriptures. We are what we call totally depraved, meaning that depravity has touched every part of our being, and that we, even if we were given a free choice, we don't make good choices. By the way, Arminians hold the same view. doesn't as matter. Calvinist Arminians both, yeah, both yeah. believe that people are, t- are touched by sin to such a degree that they, they can't make good choices. So everyone agrees on with what I just said. The question... The way they divide is that Calvinist is going to say, well, God is going to lift the elect out of that state so that when they are lifted out of that state, they end up making a cho- choice for God because they can't turn away. He's so magnificent and beautiful. They um, can't, not because God's twisting their no, arm, but no, because they're they just so enamored and captivated right, by Right, that he just the opens their eyes. It's language that's used, I, th- I think, of Lydia, right? He opened her heart in, in uh, Acts 16. Mm-hmm. He opened... Lydia's heart, so that she might hear what Paul has to say. So, uh, so, but but an Arminian's going to say, "Well, no, God does that for everybody. He lifts everybody out of it, and then He pulls His hands back so that everybody can make a free choice." The challenge that they have is that it's difficult to find places in Scripture to s- that say that that God actually lifts everybody out of this depravity and then removes His hands so that they can make a free choice for Him. Yeah, one of the things we did as we were uh, beginning this sermon series is we had a community group leaders um, training and breakfast with them, uh, and we talked with them about uh, Calvinism and Arminianism and talked about the, the commonality they have of, of loving Jesus and, and growing in, in Christ, uh, but also the distinctions they have as far as how uh, certain ideas are more specifically um, parsed out, so to speak. So they agree that God has grace, they agree on election, they agree that we have a, a choice, but how the how grace and election and choice are spelled out within those two camps is different. Um, we'll put that uh, training series in the show notes. I think we can do that. 
uh, so people can reference that if they want to. They, look they at that. have. What's important to note there is what you just said, which is that there is a there is a big agreement. That's what makes both both of them orthodox positions. Mm-hmm. Is that people we believe that without the grace of God we are doomed. Mm-hmm. Whether that grace of God is extended to the elect so in such a way that they necessarily follow, which is the Calvinist view, or it's extended to everyone and then God just chooses those who kind of who, who make good choice for him. Grace is the basis of, of both, ultimately. That God has to God has to be the first mover. He has to move you out of your depravity. Mm-hmm. Whether in Arminianism the language that they use is prevenient grace, or whether in Calvinism it's called effectual grace. Right. But grace is the point in the end mm-hmm. in, in, in both systems. And so I find myself sometimes in rooms trying to argue people who I think are kind of on the side of heresy <laughs> into a into an Arminian viewpoint. Just so at least at least even if we're going to disagree, you're holding a viewpoint that is that is orthodox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as opposed to a view that would say that well, God's grace is is nice, but I can pull myself up by my own yeah. bootstraps. So there's so a speak and there's just... a guy Pelagius who argued that against Augustine in the early church, and the church rightfully said, no, that, that's actually heresy, that we, we are not in a state mm-hmm. where we, we, we're okay. We're not just like floating in the water, and so God's going to send us a little life ring, and we can reach out and grab it. No, we're, we're, we're at the bottom of the sea there, so mm-hmm. God's going to have to come and lift us up to the top somehow, right? And whether he does that for everybody, and then gives them the life ring and says, you can grab on if you want. Or he pulls them up and drags them into the boat, right? Yeah. That's the debate. Very good. Uh, well, we've had a long uh, preamble and a long first question. <laughs> uh, so let's go to question number two. Um, and basically, what um, the, the series of questions uh, were sent in about what about the God described in other texts, yeah. uh, specifically one that was mentioned, 1 Timothy 2.4. Yeah, uh, the what, God. So that passage is basically, so 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God wants... All, all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. One of the other passages that often is quoted here, Second Peter three nine, seems to say the similar things. Some people will point to John three sixteen, right? God so loved the world, gave His only begotten Son, so whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So, yeah, I actually believe that the good theology. Let's just back up for a minute. Good theology will it doesn't just like read one passage of Scripture and then go to ones the other ones that are. That, you know that we struggle with, and just try to bury them. You know, you take you you read the passages in their context, and you try to come to some sort of conclusion about what they say in their context, and then you then you do your theology from that. Your what we call systematics. You try to figure out, okay, so if the Holy Spirit is the is the author of all of Scripture, the Holy Spirit's not gonna he's not a liar. He doesn't contradict himself. So now, well, what do we what do we make of what this one text, like say Romans nine, teaches? about God, that he is electing some and leaving others. And 1 Timothy 2, 4, which I believe actually teaches in its context that uh, God wants every, everybody to be saved. His heart is that, 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 all, that all be saved. So what do you do there? So God doesn't get what he wants? Right. Well, this is... <laughs> but he's sovereign. Right. Well, this is... The, first of all, we should say that both viewpoints, Arminian and Calvinists, agree that God doesn't, doesn't get both. Because God, mm-hmm. God, or the God, basically doesn't it doesn't get everyone saved, unless you're a universalist, which is is another heresy. But essentially, 
everybody in this in this debate believes that that God wants everyone to be saved, but doesn't save everybody. So there's there's something there's another want that God has, okay, mm. that He is choosing instead of the want of everyone being saved. Now, if you are if you're an Arminian, that other want is uh, He wants everyone to be free in what we call a libertarian sense. You free to in such a way that they're in no way um, con- in no way uh, caused to do anything. So God, Except by their own right self. God is so committed to that kind of freedom that he creates a world where he knows lots and lots of people won't choose him and will be destined for hell. So that's an Arminian view. So God knows that people are going to go to hell, and he creates a world where they're going to go to hell. And so an Arminian still has to answer that question. Why does God create a world where not, this happens? Why not just not make a world and yeah, not have totally. to go through that? So they're in, they're in, they're in, they're in a problem there. Similarly, a Calvinist though says, "Look, God made uh, God wants everyone to be saved, but he he also wants to display the full gamut of his character by judging some and by saving others." So I, I think that's what Romans nine twenty two is trying to argue. Okay, so I think and what, the, the salvation is. Or the, the the judgment is just because people have willingly turned away, right? So his character. So how do I know? How do I know you, Kyle? Well, because I I because I see you express yourself in certain circumstances. We've known each other for lots of years, and I've seen you love your wife. So I know you're a great husband. So I give you glory, Kyle, for being a, a I, good I'll husband. Have to make sure she listens to this <laughs> totally. podcast. Well, and you're a good father, and I so I've, but I. So every time I see you in a new circumstance and I see you expressing different parts of your character, I give you glory. Not all the time. Sometimes you display parts of your character that are not great. And so I don't give you glory because you're not perfect. But God is perfect. Every, every time God acts and displays his character, it is a glorifying moment, right? So God's justice is glorifying. God's love is glorifying. God's wrath is glorifying. God's Peace is glorifying. Everything that God does is glorifying. And so ultimately, if God is after his glory first... By then, glory, you mean like God gets the spotlight shown right, on him right. so we can marvel right, that at, the, at his That the best thing for the universe is actually to see God. Hmm. God is the greatest thing in the universe, so what's the best thing for the universe to see? And the answer is God. best experience of the universe is God. So how... What's the best thing then for the universe and the best thing for God and the best thing for everyone? Well, it's to see the full nature, the manifold beauty of God seen in expression of all his character traits. Well, how's that going to be achieved? Well, it's going to be achieved some, it, God, God is, God's grace is going to be shown in saving some, but God's justice is going to be shown in not saving some. God's wrath is going to be shown in that way. God's, do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So ultimately, you get in slack. So I, when I read Romans 9.22, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches, listen, the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? So I, I think what that's arguing is essentially what God chose to do was to display his glory in all of its manifold greatness, and that trumps his desire to save everybody. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't want to save everybody. He does want it. 
I have, I have, so God's got two wills. I, I have two wills too. I want to eat all of the ice cream I see, Kyle. Even pistachio? I also want to not be horribly fat. Okay. I'm going to tell you that at this present moment, one of those desires is winning, winning out over the other. Uh, you can guess which one. I'll leave that to you. But, but my point is we are, we are filled in that way is to having competing desires. So we end up choosing one over the other, and they, they might be both good desires, good things. Hmm. But I think God similarly has competing desires, and he chooses, he chooses one, the best one, over, over the other, which actually the one, his glory, encompasses some of the other, but it, it does mean that he's not going to follow through on, on his want. Does that make sense? Yeah, so the original question was, what, what about the God described in other texts? Right. So what, you're, what you're doing is saying, yeah, let's look at all the texts and the way God acts and what we know about him through his actions and through the descriptions of himself, and let's try to wrestle with those, think through those, and, and, and paint a picture from those texts of what God right. really looks like and right. who he really is. So I don't, the thing I'm trying to reject in that, in that question, I don't, the person who's asking is not getting to this, but this is what oftentimes people are, I'm trying to reject a view of the Bible that some people might be tempted to hold. And that is the, the view of the Bible is, well, you, you might believe Romans 9, but this other passage over here says this, therefore we're kind of left to pick which ones we like. I'm, right. I'm, I'm saying, no, 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 no. Good theology doesn't pick and choose which ones you like and which ones you don't like. Good theology says, well, I think that Romans 9 is teaching this about God, and I think that 1 Timothy 2.4 is teaching this about God, and somehow those two things fit together. Now, what I've give, tried to give, and, give you is I, th- I think the Bible's answer to that question. Yes, yeah, so good theology isn't um, putting a round peg in a square circle and just cramming things together. Good theology is, is really wrestling with texts in their context and looking at all texts within the broader context of of the totality of Scripture. Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, get on to the next question. Um, uh, does this make predestination double? What about predestination in relationship to election? Is this, uh, does this mean that God is um, sits on his throne and, and does duck, duck, damn to send some to hell and some to heaven? Um, <laughs> duck, duck, damn? Yeah. That's pretty, okay. You've, you've heard that before. <laughs> okay. I, I think I made it up. Yeah. Maybe. Um, listen, no, there's, there's a serious question. Just, though, just so you know, like God there's a debate within among Calvinists people about, to to about that, mm-hmm. right? There are those who who say, yeah, yes, the answer to that's yes. Uh, that God does choose some for heaven and choose some for hell. I, my my take is, and I, I I sit on the shoulders of much smarter people than me, and a and it's a well attested viewpoint within Calvinist uh, circles. My viewpoint is that God's actions in election, okay, which I think are active, like he chooses them, and his actions in what we call reprobation, okay, are different. Mm-hmm. Um, How so? I, I think God's, God's actions, as I said, are in, in election are, are more active, and God's actions in reprobation are are more passive. There are some texts that that might challenge what I just said, that I know of, but I, there are passages that seem to lean that way in particular. So even the one I just read is a good example. Uh, 
What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath? So we're talking about the pharaohs of the world. And they were prepared for destruction. Listen to that language. Prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Now, I think that's really telling that Paul, in a short space, uses the word prepare, but differently. Mm-hmm. One is he prepared uh, the objects of his wrath, like, like Pharaoh, right? And in this context, uh, also Esau and Ishmael. He prepared Pharaoh for destruction, but he prepares in advance the objects of his mercy for glory. I, to me, that seems to indicate that it's not the same kind of action. I'm not, I, I'm not in any way suggesting that God's dumb and he doesn't know that what his election is going to mean for those he does not choose. But there's an asymmetry with God right. in the sense that he's, he's giving people over to their to their wants, their desires, as even as Paul says in Romans 1, I think three times in that chapter he talks about the progression of sin and, and God's judgment is part of, part of his judgment is that he pulls back, he gives people over yeah. to the, the natural consequences of their own rebellion. So is that a passivity? That's the wrong word. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not, pa- it's like an active passivity. Does that mean, is that silly? Like he... A chosen passivity? Yeah, and he, 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 he lets them have what they want and does not bar them from the full effects of it to some degree. So, but that kind of action, my point is the action there is diff- different than the way that the that election is is described, which is a, a calling and a drawing, and then it's just all God acting, right? It's a chasing of God. It's mm. a never giving up covenant kind of, you're going to be mine kind of wooing. Right Action. after you, yeah, continually, yeah. even in bare feet, right. Just keep, yeah. just keep coming, keep coming. That that kind of action is what you find in election. You don't find that kind of action in retro, reprobation. It's more of a handing over, uh, a willingness to let you go your own way, hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, a lot of the questions had kind of philosophical aspects, and we've talked, you know, a fair amount about those already. Uh, but a lot of the questions had just real practical, personal um, implications as well. Uh, one of them asked specifically, "What you know? What hope do we have for others, for non-believers, especially?" Uh, this one question uh, questioner asked about, well, "You know, what hope do we have as Christian parents for our kids mm-hmm. if if election is be, is by God's guidance? What hope do we have for our children?" It's the only hope. <laughs> I see this differently than some. Uh, I understand where people are coming from, but they're, they're starting from the wrong. Uh, I think you're starting from the wrong assumption. The reason people raise this some question oftentimes is, well, the the better chance that my kids have to come to faith in Jesus is uh, is if the Arminian view is kind of true, right? That that it's not determined. It's all going to be. I, I'm going to tell you if people if people are are dead in their transgressions and sins, blind to God in His ways, it. It is a miracle that anybody comes to faith in Jesus, and that if you're looking at your unbelieving, you know, your apostate, unbelieving son or daughter, and you're saying, well, Arminianism's true, that everything really depends ultimately on you, and whether or not you can convey the right arguments to them that will somehow win their mind. 
even though they're dead and blind. And that puts a burden on you. In oh that, my that goodness! Sense. I just don't know. I don't know how you're going to do that with the lack of control you have in the world. What you want, even in your prayers for them, what you want is a God who can pierce through their darkness, right? You, you, you want the light of the world to shine on their hearts, mm. right? Second Corinthians 4, Paul says that, but, but we, but the God who said, let there be light has shown in our hearts to show us the light of the gospel of glory. Like, that's what you want. You, you want the God who can create light out of darkness to be able to speak to them and draw them in an irresistible fashion back. That's what you want. And I'm saying that that God exists. And I'm, gonna, I'm saying that those who are His, he, that's exactly what will happen. And I'm going to say that those kids who grew up in the faith and who are temporarily away from the faith, God keeps those who are His. So you can actually go to bed at night trusting that He can actually bring, bring them home, even in, if they're wandering at this moment. So that's what I think the Bible teaches ultimately. It also teaches that there are some who, who don't, don't believe ultimately or who have proven to not to not be be, be true. I, I I will say that that is a an existential, you know, what I mean like a momentary mm-hmm. a challenge for the heart of any parent. But you don't know. You don't know you don't know that. You don't know that that's the plight of your child or not. I I, I do believe, honestly, I do believe that when we stand before God ultimately, um these things will make sense to us ultimately that his judgment and his righteousness being displayed to all the world will be so magnificent that even we will rejoice over our friends who haven't believed. So in this whole discussion and doctrine, we get, um, I think it's fair to say we get a glimpse into some of uh, God's working, but our role and our job isn't to figure out when and how God is or isn't electing people or how that exactly is taking place as much as it is to simply love God, love people, be faithful in service to the church, the family, the community, and in the in the dynamic of that, that's that's the mechanism and those are the avenues through which God elects and awakens right. people. And pray like a Calvinist, <laughs> which is what everybody does pray like, hmm. right? I mean, at the end of the day, what what are our prayers? Are our prayers, are our prayers oh God, uh, can you surround that person with the kinds of people who might influence them in a way, not cause them, but influence them in a way that maybe they will someday choose you out of their freedom? Or do we say, God, save them? And I'm, I'm going to say that we, we say, God, save them for a reason, because we know that that's what happened to us, and we know that he can. We know that, that he did it for Paul. We know he does it this way, he opens the heart of Lydia. We know, we know that. And ultimately, we, we pray to that end. That's what I pray for, for my children. That's what I pray for my friends, my sister, sisters who are in various stages of belief and unbelief. God save them. Yeah, J.I. Packer wrote a book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which uh, picks up that very theme in the sense of this is how we pray, as we pray for God to intervene and to act and to guide and open and to awaken and to bring light and to bring life in the people's lives. Um, and this is also the way we reflect on uh, our own experience of coming to Christ, is that while we we didn't deserve this, we didn't do anything to earn this, uh, God was kind to us and gave us this great gift of the vision of Him. Yeah. Um, another practical question tacked onto that in the sense of 
Um, you know, if God guides, if this is true, why do missions? What about hmm. evangelization and and even just thinking about the young man who was killed when he was trying to go to the really remote uh, Indian island um, where there's a small tribe of people that the Indian government has prohibited people from making contact with. And he said, well, I'm going to go there in a canoe and and see if I can reach them with the gospel of Christ. Uh, and before he was able to do that, some arrows reached him and he was buried on the beach. Yeah. Uh, so why why even evangelize if if some of those some of them are elect anyway or not? Why even bother? Yeah, but there. Uh, the, the short answer is, I was asked this just the other day, and I get asked this every time this brings up, right? So why do you pray? Why do you preach? If the elector are going to come anyway. Uh, and the answer is because they're not going to come anyway. The elect are going to come through the means that God chooses to bring them. So uh, God ch- has chosen, and let's just be honest, he could have chosen any way to bring people to faith in Jesus, right? So, so God has an elect. He could have chosen to save them through angelic visitation. Kyle, it could've, he could have chosen to save them through your face showing up in their dreams and speaking sweet nothings to them in their ears. Scare them into heaven. So that when you got this dream, this was a sign that you, were, that you had to respond. And he could have, I mean, seriously, he could have done it a myriad of different ways. Quite honestly, I sometimes think it would have been way easier had God just decided, you know, yeah, we're going to do it through angels. Right, because they're my messengers anyway. I'm just going to have them go out. And I'm going to have them preach, and that way, that 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 way, it won't be on the bur- won't be a burden for the people. It, you know, it, I I can govern exactly who goes where, and they'll do exactly as I ask. Um, but he hasn't. He's chosen to save people through the preaching of the word. This is so crazy. In Romans nine, it's followed by Romans ten, mm. right? Uh, and in Romans ten, Paul says, it, "Where where are those verses?" Um, uh, Romans 10, how can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can they anyone preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so the, basically Paul's saying, right after talking about divine election, about how God will save some and leaves others for his glory, ultimately, he backs this up by saying, yeah, yeah, they're all saved by faith. And, and an explicit faith in Jesus, right. meaning that they have to profess that faith, and they can't profess that faith, right? They can't call on the Lord, so God's calling them, but they can't call on the Lord in order to be saved, in order that unless they hear, and the only way that they hear is if a preacher comes, and the only way a preacher comes is if you send them. And I'm like, there it is. Both are true. Yes, mm-hmm. God's goal is ultimately to save save His elect people. Uh his means to do it is through the preaching of his, of his word. Right. Um, staying in back in the text, back in Romans 9, I have two series or two sets of questions, I guess we'll try to wrap this up with. Just really quickly, though, yeah. just because you're, I know you're trying to hurry this up. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, right? He said, oh, is it that passage, I, I suffer all these things for the sake of the elect? Like he talks about how he's going all over the place and he's and he's dealing with people who want to beat the snot out of him all the same, all the time and he says I suffer all these things for the sake of the elect. I think that's such a fascinating phrase. Like my ministry, in other words, and my willingness to put up with all this stuff as I go out and I preach the gospel is because I know that God's got an elect group of people, and I'm going to go out and preach the gospel, and that He is going to bring those 
He's going to bring those who are his. Second, Second Corinthians 4, uh, that passage says, God of this age mm-hmm. has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He says, I don't have to dupe anybody or cut the edges off the gospel because I, because I know that God is doing this, God is opening the eyes of some people to believe, right? And he's, he's, in, he's in Corinth and gets a dream. Right, and he, Paul's willingness to suffer uh, for the elect is because he knows that God uses means, and yeah. that God is going to use the pro- proclamation of the gospel and the declaration of the victory right. of Jesus in the cross and through the resurrection, um, and, and, and he gets to be the means through which God is going to use to open people's eyes. Right. And I mean that that passage in in Acts that you know I've, Acts eighteen I, I've got many people in this city keep preaching Paul I got many people in this city they really didn't have anybody in this city not not from our point of view but he he did this is such good news though for us to preach mm. preaching's like a guaranteed success it yes there's lots of failure in the minds of lots and lots of people of course yeah people are gonna get mad at you they throw things criticize write things about you on Instagram Facebook whatever they all that but ultimately. God will bring God will bring His own, and I just I think it's remarkable that God is such a generous and sharing God that He's involved us in this work, so that it's a it is a mercy, as Paul says in Second Corinthians four. It's a mercy that we get to be involved in this kind of in this kind of work. So instead of uh, some people seem to criticize God for organ, organizing His world in this way that we have to preach in order for people to be saved and things like that. I I, I don't hold that view. I think it's magnificent, and mm-hmm. the fact that He's guaranteed some of the results the results makes me want to preach more boldly. Yeah, it gives confidence that He will work through His Word. Um, yeah. So two sets of questions. Um, Circling back to the Romans nine in particular, what about some other views of Romans nine? Um, is this about Gentile inclusion is the the surprise of 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 the text and of what Paul is trying to um, you know make the Romans realize is that they should be especially the Roman Jews that they should be thankful that God is actually including the Gentiles mm-hmm. and this is That's all a, part of His plan. Certainly a part of it. Yeah, that's not the major piece of what Romans nine is do, doing, although it is an extension. Paul, Paul it does ex, does make this argument at the end that. That the the gospel has gone. That this elective purpose of God is actually mm-hmm. something that is applied both to the Jewish nation and within Gentile nations. But that doesn't. Um, but th- that doesn't trump the God yeah, guiding one, aspect. One of, of the challenges to the election. other views of Romans nine is that they make sense unless you until they make sense at a distance. But the moment you get closer to the words and phrases of Romans nine, it doesn't it doesn't make sense because the question the question is well, what is Romans nine trying to do? in the argument of Romans. So you can make that Gentile inclusion argument because you're like, well, the whole book of Romans is trying to deal with the Jew-Gentile controversy. See what I mean? It's at a distance, you make this general statement, and see, Romans 9 is dealing with that. Well, yes, but specifically, Romans 9, in Paul's argument, is trying to answer a really important question, and that is, what, what do we do with all of these people who are rejecting the Messiah, even though they're part of God's elect nation? Okay, so all mm-hmm. these Jewish people within one nation... Okay, so some people want to argue Romans nine is about God's election of one nation over another. That's another this, aspect, the corporate. Yeah, is this this is dealing, but this the question that he's dealing with is is in Romans nine uh, one. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Well, why? I wish I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So what he's dealing with is he's basically saying, I wish I could trade places with the, some of these people 
who don't believe. They're cut, you know, I, I, they're cut off from Christ. I wish I were cut off from Christ if it were possible for their sake. So what, what do we do? What do we do with the fact that so many people who are Jews are not believing? They're, they're not, um, they're not inheritors of the covenant. And this is where he gets into the, the that his answer is, well, it's because not all Israel is Israel. That ultimately God has had an elective purpose within the nation, and he always has. Let's go back to the very beginning, right? Uh, he chose Isaac and not Ishmael. He chose Jacob and not Esau. And and you see you see this elective purpose even as as you know even with Israel and in, in the remnant at the end. I mean, they get quotes in Romans eleven about about uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah goes out and he's all alone, and he's like, "I'm the only one left." And God's like, "No, I have a remnant. I know Ahab is a Jew and he's not obeying me, but it, he's not part of the remnant. God is a remnant that that yeah. are, that is His. So the point the point is." That no, no matter how you fight this, there is within Romans chapters nine to eleven this idea that God is saving some, and He is leaving others. You even get it explicitly stated at the end of Romans nine, where He quotes Isaiah, verse twenty-seven: "Though the number of Israelites be the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved." Mm-hmm. Okay, For the Lord will carry out a sentence on earth. With speed and finality. So the, the point the point is the the language all throughout the passages is is, is about children. It's about salvation. It's about it's everywhere else the, in the book of Romans where this language is used. It's talking about people people's eternal destinies, and that's the question he's dealing with. Why are some cut off from Christ and why are some not? So the context really points you in this direction. Uh, ultimately, there are some other factors that are true. Yes, mm-hmm. that g- God is reorienting the minds of lots of Jewish people to say, no, God is not saving all the Jews. He's saving the remnant of Jews who've believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's extended that elective purpose beyond the Jews into the Gentile nations. That's why Paul says this happens to even us in Romans 9.24, even us, who he's called from both Jews and Gentiles. So within the American nation, God has has a remnant. Within the Canadian nation, God has a remnant. Within the Syrian nation, God has a remnant. He has a group, and they will be joined together where every tribe, nation, and tongue will worship him at the throne. And that's been God's purpose throughout all time. That was a shock to Jewish people. Right. They thought that they were going to be the only ones. Which they, if they had read their own scriptures more closely, they should have seen this coming, the sense that God chose Abraham even initially, that he would be a blessing among... All nations. That that's why he even began the Jewish people is to bless all nations. Right. So there's two two surprises to them. Number one, that all the Jews, just because of their birthright, aren't saved. <laughs> that's a surprise. And, and and second, so God God has an elective purpose within Israel. That would have been a surprise to them. And secondly, that God has extended this election beyond Israel into the other into the other nations. That would have been a surprise to them. So in other words, God is free to determine who he will save within a nation and extending it beyond into the other nation. So my answer to the question, when you deal with Gentile inclusion stuff, yeah, that's part of it. That, absolutely, that, that's, that's one of the implications of it. But that does not mean that this is only about Gentile inclusion. It's right. also about the salvation of individuals within nations. So God is just to deal with people fairly and give them what they mm-hmm. want, what they deserve, and he's also 
just in the sense of, of awakening them to the true light of who Christ is. Yeah, and you have these, I mean, Paul, it, throughout Romans, especially this section, he's dealing with what we call an interlocutor. He's dealing with a like an imaginary debate partner. And so you, you even get these objections made in the middle. You know, why does he still find fault? These kinds of things. Uh, those those objections only make sense in light of a in light of a uh, in in light of God electing some to salvation mm-hmm. and uh, others within within the nation and leaving others. It's the yeah. only it's the only way that those questions even make any sense at all. So my point is, as you walk through the passage, it's very difficult to support other viewpoints because it it, it does they don't make a ton of sense. People who argue for oh, there's a corporate election here will point out that the verses that Paul quotes about uh, are from Micah. He talks about Esau, you know, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. Well, those are those are quoted from Micah, and in that context, they're dealing with nations. Fine. The, the problem is that Paul's using them for individuals here. Yeah. It's not where they came from, it's how Paul is using the quotation in this context, ultimately. And, and it, the passage is actually, I, I don't think... Uh, as I've talked to people, I, d- I don't think most people, as we walked through these texts, were left wondering, uh, well, that was really unclear, because <laughs> mm-hmm. they're really not, right? Uh, as, as one guy said, they're, they're deep, but not complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, deep when we talk about God and His character, His nature, and, and wrestling the fact that He is <laughs> way, He's infinite, when we, and we're not. Right, and and that's that's actually a comfort, comfortable place to be in recognizing that. Uh, so, our last series of questions um, had to do with just like practical implications. Um, what do we do now um, about further <laughs> studying this issue? Do, do I need to be a lifetime member in one camp? Yeah, no, you know, what, what, well, I what, wasn't. Neither <laughs> you. What what um, what would be some some just practical helps for people thinking through yeah. these issues? Yeah. Well, you're always going back to the scriptures, right? Mm-hmm. And you and you go back. You know, I, I don't know. It, the longer you you study the Bible, the more you get involved in it. Uh, e- either the viewpoint that I'm espousing here will be confirmed or denied by the Bible. And if it's denied ultimately by the Bible, by good readings of the Bible, by good sound study of the Bible, then you shouldn't believe it. What I'm saying. <laughs> But I think you will find that as you study, not just in this, but in other passages and things like that, you, you, your understanding of this issue will grow. This is what has happened to me. I tend to put some of these things on the little back burner. I, I'm, I'm willing to say, Lord, I think that you're saying this about yourself in Romans 9. And that's okay to put things on the back burner. Yes, and I'm not sure how that jives with all the other stuff, but I'm willing to keep studying your word and learning about who you've revealed yourself to be. Mm. And as time goes on, I mean, your story, Kyle, is basically that, right? As time goes on, you, you the 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 dots start to connect. Mm-hmm. You start seeing other passages that make some sense out of this one, or echo what it's saying in different words. You end up some things start making sense to you because you you've opened your mind to the idea that God is like is is a sovereign king, mm. and. You will find that over time, five, ten years, you don't need to wake up every night and stress and worry about it, but you will find as you continue to study and attend church and be a part of a church that is faithfully teaching the Word of God, that these things will start to make more sense to you in the end, and you won't in ten years have the questions that you have today about them. 
Right. So no need to put an artificial time frame. You're no. going to do this in one year of graduate school and have it all figured out. On well, I don't know. It's a low. It's a lifetime. <laughs> it's a lifetime of learning. Like I, I know more about it now uh, than I than I did then. I, I think there are things that we need to commit to, though. Uh, one of them is to be charitable toward mm-hmm. those who disagree with us. Even if you come to a new understanding, maybe you disagree with me. Like this is not this is not something we need to punch each other over. That was why I started the whole series with the whole this whole section of Romans 9, like with talking about these guys who were punching each other at seminary. Like it's not we don't need to punch about it and stuff. We should hear each other out, try to come to some conclusions about it. Uh, somebody pushes us in a direction, you know, you'll meet somebody else who disagrees, you'll hear them out and you'll say, okay, well their take about Romans 9 is this or their take about these this issue is a little different. It's all good. It's all good. As long as you're willing to always go back to Scripture and try to understand what the Scriptures are trying to say about it. So let's not fight about it, but let's commit ourselves to the Scriptures. Let's commit ourselves to sitting under the Word of God and being like Bereans and trying to see if what people are saying about the Word of God is true. Mm. So being involved and committed to Scripture both or or individually as far as devotional reading, um, individual study, as far as community groups, various community groups or friends that you may have conversations with, um, also hearing God's word preached every weekend from and everything from you just described is 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 church stuff. Yeah, so be involved in the body of Christ. And I just you'll know more about. Christ. I cannot say that enough, because this is another moment to say it. I will hmm. that y- your spiritual life is heavily influenced by your commitment to the local church. And your your understanding of who God is is heavily influenced by your commitment to the local church. This is God's. So we're talking about God's means of saving people through the preaching of the word. God's means of keeping people is the local church. God's means of growing people is is His word proclaimed primarily in the local church. So some people have gotten uh, frustrated with me recently because I've said to people, you know, that they say, oh, this is my friend. He just came to faith in Jesus here. What should he do? My response is usually, he should come back next week. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, it's, I, get involved, yes, in the life of the church and things like that, but you like, come come to church. Hmm. That's what do you mean? What should you do? You should gather together with God's people and you'll find over the years that you grow in grace. And that the simple and regular things are the most impactful things. Right. And I think, unfortunately, that... It's a bit of a sidetrack, but I think, unfortunately, that Christianity, especially in our region here, is heavily uh, hurt by our bad ecclesiology, like our bad doctrine of the church. So much, many of us view the church as being this like sidebar, kind of unnecessary thing because I can get all my spiritual goods and services online, which is ridiculous. It's mm-hmm. nonsense. And if you like, I'm just you sever yourself from God's means of keeping you in the faith. Don't be surprised if you don't keep, stay in the faith. So do yourself a favor, go to church, <laughs> learn about these things. You'll find that over time through the community of faith and as you study God's Word together with others and people are teaching it to you, you'll find that you, and you teach it to others, that you'll find that you will grow and grow in a knowledge of who God is and what He's doing in His world. Hmm. Any final words as we land this plane? No, it's probably good enough. Go to church. Isn't it? We're go pastors. Everything ends there, doesn't it? <laughs> Very good. Um, well, thank you for listening, and for those who sent in questions, hopefully we were able to touch on uh, at least some aspects of the questions that you had sent in, um, and as you continue to grow in Christ and, and know Him and His Word, continue to love Him uh, in all things. I just want to close with a short um, 
well, it's a hymn, actually, a poem by William Cooper, and it sums up much of the majesty of God. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Mm-hmm.